So where did that land with you? Oh my God, it, it hit me really hard and realizing I just moved here a month ago. The last place I lived, I had that with people that I met in the program. We talked about how the program wasn't enough. We were seeing the same therapist and we supported each other. Now I only have access to these people on the phone and it's not the same and I've been really miserable um, in some ways emotionally in the last month and I realized that's what it is I don't have that community yet and, and it was a long time you know, was, I was there like almost four years so it was a lot of meetings a lot of socializing a lot of you know, getting to know people enough to know who you can open up to it's a little daunting to wonder if I'm going to find that here. I mean, it's very friendly here, but that's a lot to build again. Yeah, I, I definitely found that to be true, but um, had the same um, experience of um, who really wants to look at this? <laughs> who really wants to um, go beyond what's being offered? And um, really deal with uh, for me, self-hatred, you know, the self-loathing that is so common, um, the basic madness that people feel. And I found a lot of people were just content staying in, in the bubble and not wanting to go outside of it, but continuing to look for people that wanted to go further and, and were not satisfied say, you know, there has to be something else, there has to be more than this, because I'm still not happy, I'm still not free. Um, so, you know, it really resonated with me, really. I was in Italy a couple summers ago on a pilgrimage. There's St. Francis has a, a couple of sanctuaries in different parts of Italy. In one area, there were four sanctuaries, and the last sanctuary was set up by a Franciscan monk, and he created this treatment program he called World X, Moon X. And it was, it was a recovery program, and his basic philosophy was is, is that you know, people who had addiction issues, they didn't need doctors, and they didn't need psychiatrists, and they didn't need social workers, and they didn't need medicine. What they needed was something to hold them so that they could touch the pain that was underneath, that was actually the thing that was driving them into the addiction. And so they had a lifestyle that was very, very similar to what happened in the monastery. They got up early. They did lots of hard work. They had created an environment that was incredibly beautiful. It was open-ended. There was no such thing as a close-ended stay. People picked themselves to get there. And they, once they were there, they had a thing about not getting involved in relationships, intimate relationships, because it was too complicated to navigate the internal territory and the external territory at the same time. And they just spent hours with each other, supporting each other, working together, holding the space where they could come to where was the pain that was the underlying thing that people were moving from. And I thought, wow, you know, this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, taking the time to do that (laughs) seems like a challenge. There are a lot of pressures and responsibilities. 
So I guess, you know, one way of looking at life is to have life and the pressures and the responsibilities be something that takes you away. And the other is to have them be an opportunity to take you in. And so I think it's not so much the kinds of things that we're dealing with, but the way that we're relating to them as to whether they are things that pull us out or help reflect us back in. But it's true, you know, in our lifetimes, our lifestyles today, you know, the kind of the chaos coefficient, the pressure, the inundation with information and details and scheduling is so intense that, you know, just having quiet space that isn't scheduled with things to do is rare, you know? Very precious. Yeah. (laughs) It's rare. when it comes to dealing with trauma is that there's a lot of fear that comes up that arises like that like I know that I have trauma and I've been through traumatic situations but I have fear of facing that trauma and I don't want to rehash that situation and bring up that pain and maybe inevitably get rid of it but that fear is that's what's holding me back from dealing with that trauma. So that's one of the reasons why having some skill and entering into it is really helpful because you're not interested in rehashing the story. That's not what's interested. What's interested is to create the capacity to investigate the body sensations that are connected to it so that the body can release the accumulation without having to go through all the details of what happened. Because you're absolutely right. One of the things that can happen in, in psychotherapeutic uh, responses to trauma is it re-triggers, it reactivates it. You end up worse than you did beforehand. And so this doesn't enter into the psychological territory of the story. It stays very focused on the physiological response to it. And then using the ability to pendle so that you move back and forth between the stuff which is tight and contracted and frozen or aggressive and fighting and like that, and into the places that feel comfortable and relaxed. And that pendling back and forth between what is tight and contracted and held and embedded and something which is open and spacious and allowing is where we can navigate so the stuff then begins to be allowed into awareness and then do what it needs to do, you know whether it needs to run or it needs to shake or it needs to cry or it needs to tremble or it needs to, you know, whatever, that's what it needs to do. So if you watch in the wild or you see these movies about, you know, animals in the wild, and, you know, when you're in the wild, it's like hunter be hunted. It's like it's just constant. The threat of danger of your life is constantly in in danger. And there are these can be like these massive kind of, chase scenes with lions and antelopes or whatever and the antelope nearly nearly gets eaten and something happens and gets away and then you watch what happens and they stand up and they they completely shake and then and then they're okay so the 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 animal world has ways of discharging this pent-up energy in their body so it's not actually carried on from one time to the next time so they go through something that's terrifying and then release it it's finished And there's reasons why in our systems it gets stuck and frozen, and it's not our fault. Oftentimes what happens is is that something interrupts the releasing process, so it actually can't complete itself naturally. 
And then we're left with a pent-up energy in our system without knowing how to access it and release it. So that can be also true with off-the-wall aggression. You know, something happens and a person just goes absolutely ballistic and they're not naturally that way. But that's a kind of mechanism of trauma releasing and yet they can't tie the pieces together to figure out what's happening. You speak a lot of dealing with this in groups and with others. Are there ways to deal with it by yourself or what are your thoughts on that? On working with it alone? I think what's helpful is to have some skill of what's actually needed to work with it by oneself. And then... um, and then see what happens and see how it goes. So Peter Levine is a person who's developed this somatic response, somatic experiencing, which is a physiological way of working with trauma. And there's two books that I know that he's written. One is called Waking the Tiger, and the other is called Trauma Through the Eyes of a Child. I read Waking the Tiger a long time ago, and I thought it was very good. And I just read trauma through the eyes of a child and it is absolutely brilliant because when you read that you get a sense of some of the stuff that we're dealing with that we didn't really have any framework before because we never really thought as being traumatic and so it's very very clear instructions on how to locate it and then how to work with it so those two books I would highly recommend and then I would also recommend that people who are interested in this start um, developing more interest in figuring out what would be needed to support each other in this. So, you know, obviously around stuff like this, there's huge issues around safety. And so, you know, one needs to be very circumspect about who one talks and shares with and under what circumstances. Because the last thing that you want to do is to open yourself up for more trauma or more traumatizing of something that's already pretty raw. Yeah? So um, safety is huge and understanding what's needed in order to create safety so that you can talk about it would probably be as important as being able to talk about it. So I happen to know that there's a person in Boulder who's like so gifted in working with trauma. She's so remarkably talented in working with trauma that it's worth knowing about her in case there's stuff that needs navigating that you don't have the resources to deal with yourself. So what I'll probably do is I'll give Steve her name and contact details, and so if you want to, you can contact to find out about her. And um, for myself, you know, what I have had to learn to do both with trauma as well as other regress states, because everything doesn't fit into trauma, but there's some stuff as regress states, is I've had to learn how to hold the space of two perspectives. So if something happens for me and I get knocked into a regressed state of a young child, I have to be able to hold the perspective of the consciousness of that young child and also the consciousness of the wise or the mature person who can respond in an appropriate way. Hold both. And when I can hold both, then I can be absolutely present in a way that's absolutely appropriate. If I'm absorbed into the consciousness of the regressed child, I don't have a chance because somebody who's tiny doesn't have the resources on how to do what they need to do in order to take care of themselves. 
And if I stay stuck in the mature, wise, I've got it all sorted person, then I'm not actually present for what's actually happening in the regressed state. So I'm not tolerating into awareness what's actually present and needs to be tolerated. Now, to be able to hold both is not easy. (laughs) And for me, to be able to hold both, it took somebody else holding the space with me for a while until I got a sense of what that felt like. Then I could do it myself. Once I could do it myself, then I didn't have to have another person holding the space there with me. But for me, that, especially with really, really young stuff, you know, it's like, it's hard, you know. It's hard. So there was somebody who came up and was talking about, she works in a program for uh, teenagers, and the person who started this program was very interested in uh, trauma and addiction. Can I just check to see if, if, if it would be interesting to hear how that program works and if you'd like to know more about that? And if you'd like to, if you feel comfortable sharing. Is that relevant? Yeah. Would you like to share? Yeah. Um, I said that it was interesting because it's like the connection I always think of how life takes you certain places, you know, and I have a good friend who brings me to these meetings and like sometimes things just hit so close and that's actually what I do. I'm a therapist and I work with kids who... Um, have experienced trauma and all sudden mental health issues. And it's interesting because the woman who started it, the agency's been around for 40 years, but she grew up in a concentration camp. And she um, then went to school, became a psychiatrist, and just had a very different perspective on things about the fact that it wasn't being touched, the right part wasn't being touched in what what was being dealt with trauma. And so the whole framework of the agency has to do with the fact that anything that is considered, you know, a traumatic experience, it, it's that idea of getting stuck. It gets stuck because you have certain feelings, you have certain physical responses, and that you can't actually get over that unless there's that release. And there's different words, whether it be closure, whether it be justice, whether it be whatever the word is, but that then you can move on because it does continue to come up. And unfortunately, the kids that um, we work with have things that I don't, I honestly, it's the strength of the human condition that people are able to survive certain things. It's just amazing to me. But um, it's interesting to see it work. And it is definitely, because I work in residential treatment, so the kids live there. And we talk about safety, we talk about community all of the time because the way that I always say it is anybody who thinks that it doesn't take blood, sweat, and tears to change is way off base because it definitely takes all of those things. Um, And I, you know, I always thought about, I have a lot of kids who cut, and I've thought so many years about cutting because it's interesting that that's the way, if you think of it's actually trying to get something out of your body that's the only way that I can think of it is that it's it's literally looking for a release I mean addiction all of those things are looking for that release and finding 
the appropriate way to do it, which is a lot of what happens. It happens in a group where a kid screams or cries or gets into the fetal position on the ground or whatever, and you're there with them and you're present with them and you're supportive with them. And and realizing that we do have that other part of us which can close the floodgates. So it is kind of the back and forth that you were talking about, about letting it out and also realizing that you don't have to fall apart completely in the process. You can let it out, put yourself back together, let it out, put yourself back So it just very much touched on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back to Paula's question about how you can do this by yourself. And I think one of the ways of doing this is to begin to let meditation be more centered around body. So less conceptual, less transpersonal, more immediate, more physical, more what's actually happening and staying present with the flow of sensations as they're moving through the body. And being able to oscillate between staying present with that and learning how to touch into that which is peaceful and relaxed and feels grounded and safe in your own body. So where is safety in our own immediate experience is a really important thing to be able to locate and know and bring one's attention there. And then between that and then being able to allow and investigate to be present with sensations that feel um, tight or trembly or contracted or frozen, And then just to watch them change their shape, change their direction. All of that, the language of sensation is what's exactly needed in order to navigate release or closure. It's not thought, it's not story, it's not intellect, it's not any of the cerebral cortex stuff. It's stuff that's very much related to the physical body and the nervous system. So that, learning how to bring attention there in one's meditation would be a tremendous asset. You know, I, it's just dawning on me, you know, talking about trauma, like, my first reaction is, I don't know what trauma is, and you know, I think of, like, an ambulance flying down the street or something really super uh, specific or heavy or has a big impact on, on the person involved. But in talking about, like, a recovery sense, um, if it's something that happens to someone when they're younger and they don't aren't aware of it, now I'm, I'm questioning like what is trauma or what you know what I mean? That different levels now are for a kid, something could be more traumatic for one than another. That could be say something that stuck with me that I have yet to remember, you know. But maybe it wasn't anything so huge that it's ringing in my head through all these years and I'm fighting it. I'm not angry at my dad, you know what I mean? Like maybe. I <laughs> but no, there's no physical like abuse or whatnot. I mean, you know. But now I'm saying, okay, well, what is trauma? Because at first I think I know exactly what you're saying, but I guess it can be trauma on several different levels. So, I mean, I, okay, so I haven't studied this, so I'm not really the best person to answer the question. I can know, I can repeat what I remember, mm-hmm. and I can also share from my own personal experience the combination of the two. So what I remember from reading these books on trauma is is that trauma is perceived as a threat that you can't escape from. And the operative word is perceive. Okay? So if you're an infant and you you are hungry and you're not being attended to, okay, and even though it doesn't feel in time, in actual time, it's not that long, 
an infant doesn't have actual time. Their experience is, is, is this is life-threatening. So if that's a repeated experience, that there's needs that are not being attended to, then the child has the experience of that there's a, a primal threat to one's life that they can't attend to themselves and they have no way of dealing with that. So something as simple as that can end up being traumatic. The other thing which is fascinating is, is, is that you can inherit the traumas of your parents from birth. And so, and so, you know, like I come from Jewish ancestry, you know, where my existence is the result of 5,000 years of people running in terror. And, and, and I got it. It was downloaded before I even came into this world, okay? And my mother, you know, she's an amazing woman, my mom. She's just a totally amazing human being. But my mother, when she was born, she was 80 years old this year. She was premature. And so for the three, three months of her life, she was in a box and she wasn't touched. Okay? So, you know, abandonment stuff is like way up there on the Richter scale. That came through before I was actually even born. So, you know, you're talking about stuff that's not, you know, it's not like somebody beat me. It's not like that. You know, it's stuff that's much, much, much subtler than that. And if you don't have any sense of it, there's no way of of being able to locate how this is affecting and what actually where it's where it actually is in my system. Yeah. But the patterning is all there. So it's like, well, you see the patterning and then you step it back and then begin to feel the sensations connected to it. And then the sensations then open up, have a life of their own, and then begin to release. And then, you know, in, this, in our world, there's just a, a huge variations of sexual abuse or sexual violation that happens. And some of it's not, you know, or a lot of it is not from strangers or even people who had intention to harm. You know, there can be all kinds of other things that happen. But that stuff really sets up patterns that take a long time to uh, heal from. And that's not gender-specific. So when there's those kinds of issues that a person is dealing with, then these are the kinds of things that one needs to be able to open up the territory and begin to start feeling the, the sensations related to it and understand how to allow those sensations to emerge into conscious awareness and begin to support their release without any sense of judgment and a sense of clarity and compassion on how to work with it. So, I mean, these two books, Waking the Tiger and Trauma Through the Eyes of a Child, they're easy reading and brilliant in terms of giving really clear um, mapping of like the kind of the things that can go way wrong and some of the ways that a person can then begin to start intervening so that things can release. I mean, two of the most horrific stories in that book was about kids having medical procedures where they were... Um, strapped down, anesthetized, and then they woke up in, in, a, in a recovery room. They had no idea if they were alive or dead, and there was no one around them. And these two people went totally off the deep end for the rest of their lives. And it was there were medical procedures that were totally traumatizing, and they didn't have the kind of information on how to support them to, to come out of it. And like, deep end, like, Wow. <laughs> really scary 
but that was related to that. It was came out of the hospital, you know. So, you know, this whole thing, it's just like, well, you know, if if so much suffering can be traced back to this kind of stuff, then it seems like if we're interested in doing this moving out of suffering, then we need to understand how to navigate this territory. And if addictive behavior is an issue that needs to be attended to in order to move out of it, if there's a way that it's connected to trauma, then it seems like that would really help put a lot of the um, pieces in place, again, where there isn't a sense of, I'm a bad person and there's some kind of weakness with me. But when you've got this kind of a trauma in place, then it's natural that there's addictive responses as a, as a, as a kind of self-medicating corrective response that a person moves towards until they have the resources to deal differently. So I would be totally delighted if there was a kind of interest in, in putting some kind of a recovery program together with trauma work and see what that looked like. I mean, I think it would be phenomenally beneficial to a huge number of people. Curious what steps we can take um, as parents or with children um, to help them work with the trauma in the moment. Um, just, you know, my own readings on, on animals and nature, it's something that, that is kind of patterned in them on how to work with that, that shaking and off response. And that's something that evolutionarily, evolutionarily we shifted from. So how can we teach our children how to work with that trauma post, you know, just to shake it off so that they're not holding on to that piece? So in the book, Trauma Through the Eyes of the Child, goes through that in a very detailed way. It's very clear. But if I can remember correctly, it starts with, as a parent, if you're seeing something that happened where the kid... Um, something scary happened or they had a rough tumble or they're covered with blood or they, um, there was a serious accident or they ended up in the hospital or they saw somebody else um, happen to them, then what's needed is, is first to check in with yourself what kind of emotional reactivity you have. So any kind of freak or fight or flight or fear or this is not okay, you need to be clear that that's where you're at and attend to yourself so that you come to a place of, as much as you can, a sense of equilibrium about this is what's just happened. And then one goes to the child, and then with a kind of loving, supportive presence, then begins to start setting up the sense of, well, letting them connect with their own inner strength, you know, that they're, that they're okay or that they're, they're on safe ground now. And then from that safe ground, that safety or the safe ground or their inner strength, then one begins to kind of ask questions that opens up, you know, what's what's what, you know. So with kids, like, there's a whole series of rhymes or working with toys or doing some kind of play things. And, you know, kids work things out with play. And so somebody who understands trauma can use play in order to help them work work it out. And so... Um, they'll use dolls or they'll use toys or they use, you know, different things. And, and through the play, then one can interact with the play in order to help a person, the child, come back into feeling, you know, how does that feel now? You know, does it still feel icky? Does it still feel owie? You know, does it, you know, so with language that's appropriate for kids, one helps them track the sensations and also their response to what it's like with this kind of play. 
and then and then they'll do what they need to do. They'll shake, they'll cry, they'll stamp, and then the parent needs to support that. You know, let this stuff out. That's good. You know, let all this stuck stuff out. That's great. And then when it releases, then one can affirm the kind of sense of, well, how does it feel now? You know, is it still so scary now? And let the kids speak from their own place about where they're at. So, you know, this this book, Trauma Through the Eyes of the Child, it's got the kind of steps mapped out in poems that are good for kids who are young. And then all kinds of examples of things that happened that went way wrong. And then people intervened with, with um, play or toys or whatever. And, you know, some of the stories, you know, kids were mislabeled as autistic or ADH or ADD or whatever they were. And, and it was trauma-based. That was, they weren't autistic and they weren't, didn't have attention deficiency disorders. They had trauma that nobody had recognized and were, were mislabeling and trying to treat with medications, which is absolutely not what was needed. And so you had a person enter into their sphere who understood what was what and began to respond, and, and it didn't take long at all for the stuff to shift. You know? Or one fellow came in and... and you know, he grabbed his friend by the neck and wanted to strangle him, and he was absolutely mortified that that happened. And then, and and then, he sat down with a person and his friend who understood trauma and tracked back what had gotten triggered. And then, and then the two of them were able to work through something in a way which was really um, releasing for both of them. But all, I mean, all kinds of stuff that we come up with, which we can't, we can't rationally make sense out of, sometimes it's linked to trauma responses. So. What if that person that is close to you um, is dealing with that trauma and they will not talk to you about it and they're really turned away? And you're trying to have understanding and compassion, but um, at this point there's nothing left and your, your one choice is to deal with that internally because they're not there to receive or... So, you know, it's always the case when you're in a relationship that you have to navigate a kind of, you know, what's the right time and how do you talk about stuff and all of the rest of that. And, you know, I know living in a monastery, my goodness, I mean, there was one conversation I waited 17 years to have with a monk. <laughs> heaven help us all (laughs) because there was absolutely no capacity to talk about it beforehand you know and so you know I had to work with it myself in terms of you know dealing with and it was a totally traumatic experience that I needed to clear with and I just didn't have the capacity to talk about it so you know there's somebody that happens a lot with relationships that a person is not receptive and then one doesn't have the kind of magic wand to make them receptive so one has to do the work oneself and what does that leave you what's left with you what gets activated in you what gets landed in you and also trust that there's a miracle of mindfulness that happens in the ether that even if you aren't speaking about something verbally if you just hold it in clarity in awareness of what you know to be happening without judgment, without wanting it to be different, with a sense of compassion, with a sense of openness and receiving, there's something incredibly powerful that happens even though you don't say a word. You know, one of the things about um, 
meditation groups, I mean, you guys are different, but meditation groups tend to be, you come and you sit, and then you leave, you know? And so the, the kind of way of connecting is through silence and not through interacting and knowing each other and, and being personally um, engaged with each other and each other's lives. And so, you know, I've been back and forth on the Dhamma Punks Facebook group posting various things and see the, you know, the different kinds of social things that, you know, bike rides and picnics and, and uh, music stuff and all kinds of stuff that is happening where there's ways of connecting up and meeting with each other in order to, I mean, just hang out and have fun. But also because, you know, really what's needed is is a way to navigate the bringing the practice into the different elements of one's life. And there needs to be a fabric of welcome and friendship that can support that shift. And so it is... It's, I just feel delighted when I see all the kinds of stuff that's going on and the way people look out after each other or, you know, take care when somebody is in need of support. You know, somebody just posts something and then it's sorted. You know, people offer and rides are offered or whatever. And, you know, that level of looking out after each other begins to feel that, well, first of all, you're not in this on your own, that there are people you can count on, that if you need some help and you let it be known that help is often very generously forthcoming. It then begins to start knitting a fabric of trust where then one can begin to start exploring how do you open up some of this stuff in a way where you're doing it justice, you know? So it's like, it's not good just to sit in a group and like have a free-for-all around things that are so raw. That doesn't do anybody any good. But to begin to start picking up the pieces so that there's a sense of a fabric of what's needed to begin to start developing more of um, uh, a network so that we can, we can start opening or looking or moving in the direction where we are meeting each other where we really are at rather than with some kind of a, a social... Um, friendliness or graciousness, but it actually isn't underneath the surface of what's actually happening. And that takes negotiation, and that takes time, and that takes, like, agreement, you know. It takes a willingness and the agreement of people to want to do that. And some people don't don't want to go there, and that absolutely has to be respected. But for people who do want to go there, then it's really helpful to start figuring out, well, what would that look like? And... And, and is there ways to start developing a, a field of, of, of friendship that then can allow that to begin to emerge? You know, what would that be? How would that look? You know, how would you, how would you negotiate? You know, what, what, what kind of shape might that take? And they're not easy questions, because it's not like there's a straightforward answer. But what I do know um, is, is that when a community can actually create that kind of support for each other, what is it like? It's like grandmother's feather bed, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> so I have friends who are in Michigan and you know, they have an incredibly loving and very tight-knit community. And, you know, they've been doing stuff together for a long time now. 
and there's a dream group and there's a song group and there's uh, various different things that they get together and hang out and do stuff together regularly and then through this there's a kind of fabric that has emerged which then holds when you know the, the shit starts hitting the fan and some of the stuff starts bubbling up and they know each other really well and so it's like you know they know how to support but they also know how not to to um, collude is there anything more to talk about tonight maybe enough thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.